Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, November 13th, we are studying Amos chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. The prophet relates his second vision, one that is closely parallel to the first, yet one that ups the ante from those destructive locusts. In this second vision, the Lord shows Amos an all-consuming fire. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Pastor Wolfmuller serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's cold in Texas this morning, Pastor Wolfmuller. <laughs> I know. I never, if you would have told me it was ever going to be below 90 degrees for the rest of my life, I wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's freezing out there. <laughs> How appropriate we're looking to fire then today, huh? <laughs> That's right. So, so Pastor Wolfmuller, as we get started here this morning, there's there's plenty of things that we could talk about in terms of context. But what I, what I think I'd like to have you talk about is is this matter of the the prophetic vision. We talked a little bit about it yesterday. When when the scriptures tell us that a prophet had a vision, what should we understand is going on there? Yeah, they. Um, I think the key here is. In Jeremiah chapter 23, which talks about the false prophets, and it contrasts the false prophets with the true prophets, and it says the false prophets um, have not stood in the counsel of the Lord, and, and yet they act like they have. And that indicates to us that one of the marks of the true prophet is that they do stand in the counsel of the Lord. Now, that, I think we should understand that counsel very literally. That there is a um, that there is a throne room of God. That, that's what we normally call heaven. Where there's a place where the Lord reigns, and it's not on the other side of the moon or beyond the orbit of the universe or whatever. It's it's everywhere, and yet it's unseen. It's not we we can't identify it um, with with our natural eyes. But if the Lord wants to show us. To, to bring us into that council room, then he'll, he'll, he, he can kind of tear back the veil. He can apocalypse it and, and show it to us. And, and in that council is a conversation about the Lord's will, past, present, and future. So, I mean, as an example, we consider how Isaiah stood before the throne of the Lord when he was in the temple. And, and, the, and the curtain was pulled back, and he saw the Lord in his glory— and his robes filled the temple. Or Ezekiel, as he was in exile, the, uh, the, the veil was pulled back, and he was able to see the throne of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord could travel with the whirling wheels all around it. Or, or the revelation of Jesus given to St. John on the island of Patmos. It's like the curtain is pulled back, and they're able to see that heavenly reality. And it seems to me that this is the... the the seeing that the seers would do. This is the prophetic vision that they would that they would be given. And in that they would hear the conversation of God or they would see the Lord's plans for the future that he would unfold his will to them very directly. And I think the reason why I think about it this way is helpful is because you know we we think of a like a vision like like a ghost appears before someone or like there there's a hallucination or something like this. In other words, the vision to us seems less real than the reality. Like a, it's like a mirage, like a mirage given by the Lord. But, but really, we should, we should flip our thinking about that. When, when the prophets have these visions of the counsel of the Lord, they're seeing that which is, which is, which is more real than the reality that we see around us. It's, it's, think about it like this, Pastor Apple. It, see if this, this helps. I, I, you know, when Jesus was resurrected, he could apparently walk through walls or stones or whatever he wanted to walk through. And, I, and I, we normally think of it like Jesus was, was like a ghost, like Casper the ghost who could pass through solid things. 
But I think it's better to reverse our thinking about that, that Jesus is so real that the walls are to him like ghosts and shadows. Hebrews uses this language, and it talks about the, the tabernacle on earth as a shadow of the heavenly reality. So the prophets are invited into that which is even more real than this life, and they see it. And then they're sent back to make that counsel of God known. I do think that's a very helpful way of looking at it. When you think of Jesus and his resurrection, that that his reality is more real than everything else around him. And the same thing would be true for the visions that the prophet sees, including Amos here, that they are they are experiencing something very, very real. And and I think that's that's the main point I want to emphasize is that this isn't some sort of hallucination, um, a mirage, as, as you said. This is something very real that the prophet is experiencing there in the throne room of God in his council. The the conversation that's going on there, Pastor Wolf Mueller, who's, who's all participating in that conversation besides the prophet when he's invited up? Well, it's, the, it's chiefly the conversation between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I think there's five or six or seven things. I, I don't, my list keeps expanding, things that happen in this heavenly throne room. But the chief one is the conversation between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then the angels are brought into it, and then the prophets are brought into that conversation. Um, but we get little glimpses. This is some of the most glorious stuff in the Scripture when, when we get uh, with this conversation between the Father and the Son. So like Psalm 2, today... I have begotten you, or sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, or Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, these, these, the, the, this little bits of conversation about um, between the Father and the Son, and it turns out that this, this heavenly conversation is about us. It's about, it's about Israel and Judah, and it's about the Lord's people, and it's about his dealing with the Lord's people. And, um, and, and the conversation goes back and forth because we see, and we'll see it in this text that we're looking at here, is that the prophet is invited into that conversation, not only to make the conversation known amongst the Lord's people for the purpose of repentance, but also to intercede for the people for the Lord's repentance. So the prophet is the one who, who stands in the, in the council of God and then goes and stands in wherever. In Amos's case, he stands in the temple in Bethel. To, to preach repentance to the people, but takes up his place in this conversation of God to to intercede for them at, at at the Lord wills, and then the Lord even hears the counsel of Amos. This is amazing, and he says, "Yeah, I'm okay. I'll change my mind. <laughs> I'll do something different." <laughs> it's incredible. It is. That, that was something that I, I think I learned yesterday or came to appreciate a little bit more to hear of the, the prophetic office of interceding for the people. Normally, I, I would think of the priest as the one who intercedes for the people. But here we see that that intercessory role is, is tied up within the prophetic office as well. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves. I know we'll talk about that more, but it's just it's it's intriguing to see that and then to tie that together with this conversation that's happening in the heavenly council does make it make it all the more amazing. And and then I, I think as well says says something that's quite important about the the prayers that the church offers still today and and the way that are we participating in the heavenly council in, in a sense when we offer the prayers of the I oh know maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, Pastor Wolf Mueller, but we're there. So no, are no, we are we no. participating in the heavenly council with our prayers as the church today? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I mean. when Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves but friends because the friends know what the master is doing that that I, that title of friend is the office of intercessor it's not just like hey we're buddies now with jesus to, to be a friend of the king is to be part of his council that's what it means it's like the language that we uh we would have the language of um uh cabinet you become a cabinet member so if the president um appoints you as cabinet he's putting you onto his advisory council and that's what Je when Jesus says, I call you my friends, he says, I, you are now part of my advisory council. So our prayers are standing in the presence of the of the throne room of God. So this is always when when the prophets are given this vision, when the prophets stand in this throne room, it's always filled with incense, which is the prayers of the saints. So so we are there by 
by way of prayer and in a number of other ways as well. But that's exactly right. And with this idea of the prophet as intercessor, as my pastor Graf uh, down in Albuquerque pointed this out to me, that the first time that the word prophet is used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 20. And it's God speaking to the king Abimelech, who's about to marry Sarah and bring upon himself all sorts of trouble. And God speaks to Abimelech, and he says, go to Abraham, because he is my prophet. And uh, it said here, I'm looking at verse 7. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. So the very first the very first thing that's given to the prophets is the office of intercession. And can you imagine Abimelech? He's like, well, this guy is the guy who caused me all this trouble in the first place. Abraham is the last person I want to go to for help. But that's the one that the Lord has appointed as prophet. And so Abraham is the one who's going to do this work of intercession. So before, before the, the prophet is making known the counsel to the people, he's, he's also standing before the Lord uh, interceding on behalf of the people so that the Lord would not destroy them, but would bless them. Hmm. That that leads me to another question. And, and if you don't, if you're not sure about this, that that's fine. But just in terms of the book of Amos, then as the book of Amos progresses here, you know, it's not until chapter seven that we get these specific visions that were given to Amos. Is, is, is the book of Amos laid out chronologically, do you think? Or is it is it possible that these visions actually happened earlier before Amos's preaching that we've been reading already? That's a good, I don't know the answer. I, and I don't think we can know the answer. Maybe people might have guesses about it. But what the we're right on the edge of, because we have these series of five, it's five visions, I think, that happen here at the end of Amos. We're, we're in the second one. After the third one, we get this little, um, this funny little narrative break where, where Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, so the, uh, this is amazing. So, I mean, here's Amos <laughs> preaching at the Bethel uh, uh, temple, <laughs> and the priest comes and he says, hey, you got to stop preaching. <laughs> go, go back to Jerusalem and preach down there. We're tired of you preaching here. And, and then Amaziah says, oh, you want me to stop preaching? Well, here's a little sermon for you. Your family is going to be killed, and you're going to go into exile, and also all these other things are going to happen. <laughs> <I've been> saying, <laughs> oh, man, that's what happens when you try to shut up a preacher. I mean, it's, it's a prophet. It's, it goes poorly for you. And so it does seem like these, uh, these visions are connected to that historical event. But how it weaves in with the rest of the of the preaching of, of Amos, I'm not sure. But I, I think I, I would like for these visions to come later, because especially with the second vision, it um, there, there's this uh, there's this waiting for the fire that from the from the first preaching of Amos that now comes in chapter seven, and and there's this. There's this dramatic pause that happens with Amos's preaching of fire that, I, that I'd, I'd love to unfold a little bit more. And, but the, but that, that that pause is there, I think, is intentional, and it shows the connection between all three parts of the book of Amos. Mm, yeah, I, okay, I, I like that. And I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure on it either. It's just with the role of the prophet as intercessor and then preacher kind of just made me— Asked that made me wonder a little bit, but I, I like what, what you're getting at. And so let me go ahead and read the text so that we can start digging into this matter of the fire that we've, we've talked about a little bit already. So Amos chapter 7, uh, verses 4 through 6. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So that's Amos's second vision here in chapter 7. Pastor Wolfmiller, you were, you were talking about the fire, that there's this pause within the book of Amos, and now we hit play again. What's going on? Yeah, well, so if you remember, there's kind of these three parts of the book of Amos. So you have the first part is his preaching against all these nations, and he kind of circles around and he gives these woes to all these different nations. And then finally he comes back to even to Judah. He preaches against Judah and then to Israel. 
and he comes back to Israel. But there's something rhetorically that's really stunning. So I, I want to just take a little time to build this up because I think when we see this, all of a sudden the book of Amos really is going to is going to open up for us. So in Amos chapter one verse four, it says, "I will send fire into the house of Haziel." This is uh, against Damascus. Then against Tyre, he or against Gaza. He says, verse 7, I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza. Verse 10, I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre. Verse 12, this is against Edom. I will send fire upon Teman. Then he, he's woeing the Ammonites, and he says, verse 14, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah. Against the Moabites, chapter 2, verse 2, I will send fire upon Moab. And then to Judah, I will send fire upon Judah. But then in chapter 2, verse 6, he starts prophesying against Israel, and there's nothing about the fire. It just doesn't come up. You're, you're, the, he, the Lord sent fire upon every other city, upon every other place, but there's no fire, and you're waiting for it. Like, what about the fire? When's the fire coming to Israel? When is that going to fall on us? And, and he doesn't say anything, and you're like, wait. I, it's coming. It's got to be coming. There's got to be fire. Uh, and, and so it gets, it, he hints at it so you don't forget in chapter 5, verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph. And you're like, oh, okay, now I'm ready for the fire. But now when you get to chapter 7, he says, okay, now here it comes. This fire that you've been waiting for all through this preaching, it, it's coming. I'm going to send fire, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to consume the great deep and it's going to devour the whole land. So, so this, um, it's we, we, you know, we do a, 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 a one of the dad jokes that that I like to do is a knock knock joke, and I'll say to Isaac, my youngest, I'll say, knock knock, who's there? I'll say scared Isaac, and I'll say scared Isaac who, and then I'll wait, and I'll wait, and I'll wait, and I'll wait for until he's not expecting it, and then, ah. I'll jump up and scare them. Uh, th- now, this is, the, this is the kind of thing that is happening in Amos, is that fire's coming, and they're waiting for it. They're like, I know fire's going to be here. It's going to show up soon, but they're waiting. And as they're waiting, the tension is getting, is getting tighter and tighter until finally now we get to it. I saw the vision, and there it was, fire. So the Lord jumps out, scares his people finally here here is the fire that we've been waiting for and i, I think there's there's two elements to this fire that we we should look at pastor wolf Mueller. one is is this matter of that the lord calls it a judgment by fire that and, and we need to understand that word in its in its context i think we hear the word judgment and and we think punishment but but maybe there's a, a bigger picture there going on and the the second thing that i want to talk about we'll probably have to look at that after the break is the extent of this fire the the matter that it, it's devouring the great deep and eating up the land so so first when it comes to this fire it, in the esv it reads a judgment by fire but what's the bigger picture that we need to understand with that word that's translated judgment yeah here sometimes it's translated conflict by fire or here's one it says uh the, the Lord was going to call for a legal case with fire, uh, or the Lord was going to call uh, to contend by fire. It's a, a little bit of a tricky word, but it means to to argue a legal case. So it takes so this word there, um, the the Hebrew word is uh, let's see, larav or larev. Uh, it's it takes us to the context of the courtroom. And, and it's saying that the Lord is going to give a verdict, and the verdict, his judgment, is going to be punishment by fire. Now, every time we go to the, into the, to this throne room of God, we remember that not only is there conversation happening before the Holy Trinity, between the Holy Trinity, but that there's also legal cases being argued there. And, this le- and the legal case is always for the innocence or the guilt of the people. And so we have to say, are the people going to be judged innocent or are the people going to be judged guilty? Make a good point, because whenever we hear judgment, we often hear condemnation. But, but judgment can bring in two different directions. It can be the judgment of condemnation, judgment of innocence and, and righteousness. And, and our great hope, our great understanding is that in this heavenly court, because of the blood of Jesus, the Lord has judged us to be righteous. In fact, 
I think we get a little echo of this. I mean, Amos is almost all law, but we get a little echo of this when the Lord relents concerning this judgment of fire, because the only way he can relent is, is not because the people's righteousness or because the people are somehow going to atone for their own sins, but because Jesus is standing in that court and interceding for us. So when Amos speaks up and prays yet again, we're seeing Amos as a, a picture of what Christ is going to come to do then. Is um, that true? Jesus is, <laughs> Jesus is the advocate who stands before the Father. So, so John writes, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. How glorious is that? And, and, and Amos is going gonna, is gonna to stand in that office of advocate as well. So then, Pastor Wolfmiller, just with a few minutes on this side of the break yet, then the, the other aspect of the fire that, that you see is this matter of devouring the great deep. And this is a, a pretty significant fire then that would, that would I mean, the, the great deep is referring to like all, all the waters of the world, sort of the, the subterranean waters. This is, a, this is a big fire, right? Right, that's right. So this is a... Um, in fact, it's probably a hint at the, at the fire that will come on the last day. So just like there was a universal flood that, that, that purged the, the, the whole earth at the time of Noah, so now we have this universal fire that's going to burn so hot that it's going to burn up the waters of the oceans. This is incredible. I mean, we have, remember what, uh, when Elijah was there with the prophets of Baal, and he dumped all the water on the on the sacrifice, and the fire from the Lord came and it consumed the sacrifice and the altar and all the water in the trough around the altar. And we're amazed at how how that fire burned. Well, this is a fire with such intensity that it will burn up all the water in all the world, all the oceans. So this is a it's an intensification of the vision that was given before of the locusts. The locusts are going to come and devour everything, but this is going to come and rock and wreck utter devastation. That, uh, that picture of Elijah on the, on the, on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal was the image that had come to my mind too. And, and so for the Lord to, to burn up, not just the water around an altar, but the, the water all over the world, this is a, a cosmic judgment. So Amos is, is, certainly picturing here or being shown here by the Lord what's going to happen to Israel in terms of its its punishment, its judgment, the, the condemnation that they're earning for their idolatry. But it but it's a picture of of the, the final judgment as well. Is that what you're saying, Pastor Walt Mueller? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean this um and and we're gonna see in the Lord relenting of this at least for a while that the Lord doesn't send this fire at the intercession of Amos, uh, we're going to see a reflection of what Peter says about the Lord, that he's not slow about his promises, as some are in the habit of thinking slowness, but he's, he's long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should perish. So that, so, so that this fire has not yet fallen on the earth, that we're still waiting for this fire, that the Lord is holding it back until the last day, is another picture of the Lord's patience. And with that talk of patience, if you will just be patient with us, we are going to take our break here on Sharper Iron, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive Word and Sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide Word and Sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. 
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, November 13th. We're looking at Amos chapter 7, verses 4 through 6 with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, prior to the break, we've been looking at the fire, the, the great extent of this fire, this worldwide, all-consuming fire that, that is up the ante from what we saw previously in the first vision of, of locusts. And this intensification that we're seeing here in Amos chapter 7 and really from other places in the book as well, is, is something that the Lord has has told his people would happen if they've followed down the path that they've they've gone. Um, what's what's going on there? Yeah, that's right. Um, so the, the Lord is giving, I mean, we, we want to remember, maybe to take a half step back, that the the reason why the the Lord sends the prophet to preach judgment and condemnation and trouble is precisely because he desires for them not to come into judgment and into trouble. So the reason why the Lord sends Amos to warn them of this great fire or the locust or whatever is because the Lord does not want to, to, um, to send these things. So the, um, maybe again, to turn to Jeremiah for the illustration of this, Jeremiah is sent by the Lord down to the potter. And he says, go to the potter's house and watch how that goes. And he goes down to the potter's house and he watches the potter as he's making something, I don't know, a bowl or a, a, a pot or a water pot or some something to eat with or something like this. And he's making it. And then all of a sudden, something is different in the clay. He notices something, that the clay is not suitable for this use. And so he changes and he makes something different. He, he's intending to make a bowl and instead he makes a plate or something like that. And the Lord says, you see how that happened with the potter? Well, this is how it happens with me. If I come and I preach destruction and devastation and the people repent, then I will rep repent concerning the destruction and will deliver them. If, on the other hand, I come along and I promise good things and, and you don't do what's right, but instead turn from, from my ways, then I'll bring destruction. So the preaching of the prophet, the promise of destruction, is, is given to the people so that the Lord won't keep his promise, so that the Lord will change his mind and give them something better. And then the Lord says to Jeremiah, now go to the people and tell them, I'm going to destroy them. <laughs> In other words, don't mistake this preaching. The preaching is for the purpose of repentance. And so here it's good for us to remember that as well. I mean, the reason why the Lord is to, to Bethel, this apostate temple, it's, I mean, it's an amazing picture of God's grace. And here the people have left the true worship of God. They've been committed to this idolatrous heterodoxy for, for 200 years almost, uh, for at least 150 years. Uh, they've been, they've been sac offering sacrifices not according to the Lord's institution. They've been hearing false doctrine for this law, and still the Lord is sending the prophet Amos to them, and he's saying, here, the Lord is going to do all this, terrible stuff, but the reason why I'm here preaching is so that he won't do this terrible stuff, so that the Lord will change his mind about it. So so the Lord could, if he wanted, just whoosh, send fire. He could, if he wanted, just blam, send the locusts. He could, if he wanted, whop, send the Assyrians and just wipe them out. No warning whatsoever. But the Lord is sending the prophet to warn the people so that the things that he's warning them about won't happen and that's what the lord wants most of all that the the parallels that i continue to see in the book of amos to what happens with the people in egypt and the plagues of egypt are just striking I, the lord tells pharaoh something very similar in the in the seventh plague he he tells him i think is it the seventh plague yeah, for um, this is Exodus nine fifteen. By now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. I mean, the Lord, the Lord could strike with judgment right away, 
but he doesn't for the sake of mercy, for the sake of, of repentance. And that's why he sent Amos and, and often preaching in ways that, that recall a lot of the things that happened in Egypt, a, a reminder to the people, look, you, you were saved from Egypt and now you're turning into Egypt. It's just, it's striking to see how, how Amos over and over again recalls that account and now uses it to preach to the people in his day. And, and as a part of that preaching, he's, he's reminding them of some of the, the curses, the covenant curses that are there after they've come out of Egypt, that the Lord promises, yes, you will have these blessings if you do these things, but if not, here are the curses. And, and that's what we're seeing happening here in the book of Amos, right, Pastor Wolf Miller? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, th- th- look, it's a, it's this is a setup from the beginning and how it how it's going to be to the end of time as well. You're going to either have the Ten Commandments or you're going to have the Ten Plagues. So those are your options. And uh, uh, the people here, as they abandon the true worship of God, and everything that that implies in this kind of decadent age of Amos, uh, then the, now the plagues are going to come back. And there's these sort of escalating, these escalating tears of trouble that the Lord is going to use to bring them back. It's almost like, you know, it's, it's, it's like when you're trying to uh, discipline your children, the first order of discipline is not that extreme, but it gets more and more extreme as the, as the uh, the people are more recalcitrant, so there's there's really kind of four waves uh, of increasing trouble that the Lord is going to deliver to the people. You have first deprivation, where the Lord will take away the things that they need, then devastation, where the Lord will come and wipe them out, then deportation, and then utter destruction. So the Lord says these these are the kind of he, and He tells them beforehand. This is Deuteronomy 29. He says this is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to discipline you. I'm first going to to deprive you, and then I'm going to devastate you, and then I'm going to deport you, and then I'm going to destroy you. That, that that's and so you can tell where you are in my kind of scale of displeasure by the things that are happening. So you have the locusts, which would be deprivation. You're not going to have the crops, and then you have this fire, which is devastation, and then you have deportation, and then destruction. And fine, and that's where that's what happens. I mean, we are. We're here in 756 BC, and this it it all culminates in 722 when the Assyrians come through and they totally wipe out the place. So we are about 30, 34 years away from destruction, as Amos is here preaching. And the people couldn't see it. I mean, they were living high on the hog. They maybe not on the hog. It was after all Israel, but maybe on the hog. Who knows? But they were just. I mean, they were living it up in this kind of decadent. This is the, they're they're pouring their wine into bowls and not cups. I mean, it's extreme over there, but they're just on the edge of this destruction. And so the Lord sends Amos to them to warn them, precisely because the Lord doesn't desire to utterly destroy them. Just like the Lord didn't desire to destroy to destroy Pharaoh, his he he gave him all these chances, opportunities to repent, because that's the that's the Lord's. That's the that's the, the love that the Lord has. He desires all people to come to repentance. Hmm. And you see that that same heart within Amos as well. That that he too does not desire for the Lord to destroy these people. It, these these prayers that Amos offers in in both the first and second vision, I think, help us see that. It's it's very easy to look at Amos as a, a fire and brimstone preacher, as if he somehow enjoys putting the people in their place, calling them out. I mean, it would be really easy to imagine Amos liking that too, being from Judah, the southern kingdom, who at, who at this time really is is lower than Israel economically, politically, in those outward ways. And, and even Judah being oppressed a little bit by their brothers from the north. It would be really easy to think of Amos as as enjoying this kind of preaching. He's gonna he's gonna stick it to these people. But but instead he prays. And he prays, "Oh Lord God, please cease." And so we're we're back to that office of the prophet as the the intercessor here, Pastor Wolfmuller. Yeah, it, it's how and how incredible for us to consider that 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 the prophet's chief work is the work of intercession, and that the Christian's chief work is the work of intercession. Uh, I suppose it's the same for us as pastors. We think, well, my my chief job as a pastor is to preach, but. But in fact, I think it's the other way around. My chief job as a pastor is to intercede for on behalf of the people. 
and the 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 same thing for parents that we think our chief job is to is to parent our children but in fact the most important work is the work of intercession uh and this is this is always the case for for us that i mean everything happens i'm going to maybe bounce this off of you pastor apple because this might be going a little bit too far but it seems to me that just about every work of god that the Lord does, especially in his work of redemption, is in an answer to prayer, and almost explicitly so. So, for example, when the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he's going to appoint Moses as the deliverer of the people, he says, I heard their prayer. So, so, that, so that the exodus is a direct response to the people's prayer. So that, so that salvation is always following a calling upon the name of the Lord. This is all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, that, so that, uh, so that even in in a profound way, the Gospel of Luke gives us the um, gives us the birth of John the Baptist and the and the birth even of Jesus as the response to the to the these people's longing for deliverance. Now, this isn't to say that that God re- responds to us. That's not. I don't want to. I don't want to go. The Lord is always the first to love and to act and to and to do, and we are always chiefly the recipients of that act. But the Lord gives, um, but the but the Lord in some ways is is responding to our prayers for help and our prayers for deliverance, and He's answer He's answering our prayers, and and our prayers then ought to be understood as as some of the most important things that we are called to do. It's it's the most important vocation that the Lord gives to us. And we see that when he calls the first prophet Abraham and gives him the first work of interceding for Abimelech. And the Lord hears that prayer of Abraham, and he relents of the evil that he was intended for Abimelech. I, I like that, that thought, that the Lord answers our prayers, his, his acts of salvation come as answers to our prayers. And I, I think the, the way that I would uh, not qualify it, but, but maybe clarify some of the things that you were, I think you were bringing out is that the, the prayers that he's answering are the prayers that he's given us to pray. So, so Abraham is a good example of that, that, that he, he prayed what the Lord told him to pray. And so the Lord answered that prayer. And, and same with uh, the other example, the one that you went to, too, was, was one I was thinking of was Zechariah in the temple praying. How does the Lord answer that prayer by, by sending the angel Gabriel to announce the birth of John and then the, the birth of Jesus later? And, and I've often wondered, because I, I have to confess here, um, when, it, when it comes to that prayer, that, that I, the way I always read that or understood that text in Luke 1 uh, growing up, at least, and I don't—I don't think I'm unique in this, but maybe I am. I when when it said Zechariah was in the temple praying, and then Gabriel shows up and and tells Zechariah that his prayer has been heard and a child's going to be born. I, I always I always thought that Zechariah was in the temple praying for a child, <laughs> but and it was sometime I don't know if it was in seminary or when I was a pastor. It, it dawned on me well, no, Zechariah wasn't in the temple praying for a, for a child for himself. He was in the the temple praying the prayers that that the people of Israel had been given prayers that were asking for the, the seed of the woman to come all along. And so I, I guess the reason I'm bringing these, these things out is because these are, these are all prayers that the Lord had given to his people to pray. And so he answers them with, with what he intended to give them, which is the gift of salvation. Because as, as you said, we don't want to, we don't want to say that, that we're somehow forcing God's hand either in, in our prayers you know he and i can't remember where he, where he says it but but before you called i answered he he says um right. but but i think I, I think i think you're on to something there i don't know did, did that help clarify and no, some of the things right. you're saying i mean because because there's this way that we i think the devil uses our like our theological reflection to choke up our prayers and i think that's the thing that we have to just be warned against so we will think to ourselves well how if the lord is the first to act then what do our prayers matter if the Lord knows what's going to happen, then what do our prayers matter? If God knows what he's going to do, then why do we need to pray? If the Lord knows what we need, then why do we need to pray? But Jesus says, hey, the Lord knows what you need 
And that's why you pray. That's how he starts the Lord's Prayer. uh, Your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. Therefore, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. So that that the fact that the Lord knows, the fact that the Lord's in charge, the fact that the Lord is um, has plans is is not to it doesn't stop our prayers, but in fact it starts our prayers. So we ask the question: Well, how can it be? Salvation comes from the Lord. We're the recipients of the salvation, and and yet the Lord is reacting to our prayer. How can that possibly be? And the answer we have in the in the from the Bible, I think, is well, pray. <laughs> it doesn't answer the question. It just says you ought to be praying, and you ought to recognize that the Lord actually answers prayers. That's not, it's, this is, I mean, however you want to understand it, it's fine, but this is the basic, the basic fact that's put before us on every page of the scripture, is that the Lord hears our prayers and he answers them. And if we can't understand it, then it's better to just not understand it and to pray rather than to try to understand it and not pray. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. The the we we ask that question, why why should I pray and the Lord doesn't really answer. I mean, he does answer it, but not in a way that's satisfactory to to our logic. You know, I mean, I I I I love what he says there in, in front of the Lord's prayer. The Lord like like you pointed out, the Lord knows what you need to pray. What? What? Then that doesn't if he knows, then why doesn't he just give it to me? Well, no, just just pray and and take comfort. In, in not understanding the reason behind it all from the Lord's perspective, but just take comfort in the fact that he's given you his word, his, his command, his promise, and he's, he's going to do something about it. He's going to answer it. And he does, he does answer Amos's prayer here in chapter 7. After Amos cries out, O Lord, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. It says, the, just as we heard in the first vision, the Lord relented. He, it's a hard word to, to maybe put into English, relented, regretted. It, it's translated in various ways. But the Lord does answer Amos, Amos's prayer for uh, leniency. Um, I, I don't know, salvation. Maybe can we can we say I don't know what what's going on in the Lord's answer to the prayer there? Well, he, that's right. So it, I mean, we want to remember that we're standing in the court. That's what this business of the conflict by fire, and um, and and Amos is now going to stand there, and he's not going to make an argument. But he's he's simply going to beg for mercy. He, he's so it's almost like a you know you can go to court and and you and you hear the case and that's what we normally think about and you have your advocate and you have your accuser and the case is heard and the judgment is made and so forth. But then it, when it comes to sentencing, you hear like you hear victim statements or all this sort of stuff and and you have so you have people coming in to make their plea on how the sentence should go and that's where Amos comes into this. He comes in when it comes to the sentence. So the Lord has said, okay, the guilty, and here comes the fire. And Amos comes in and he says, would you have mercy? He's not arguing their goodness. He's not arguing anything. He's just saying, please have mercy. Lord, have mercy. The, prayer, the beggar's prayer. And the Lord says, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll have mercy. It's really great. I mean, and it, and it gets back to this sort of, to this mystery of prayer, the Lord relented here. He was sorry. He he changed his, his mind. It's so, it's so hard for us to think about the Lord changing his mind because we think, well, how can that be? The Lord knows everything. How can how can he sit here and hear this prayer from Amos, a sinner, a prophet, but a sinner, and say, okay, Amos, your idea is better than my idea. I'll go with your idea. That's. I mean, it doesn't. It's astonishing to us. But the, but but the point is that we just have to let it be astonishing. I mean, we have to that we have to, and if we want to do some theological work to understand how this can be, that's fine. I, I, I think there's work to be done, especially with the doctrine of the Trinity. I was reading this old book, some missionary to Africa talking about prayer, and he said the reason why God can change His mind is because He's He is Trinity, because there is this. There's this openness in the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to be in conversation with one another. So that when the Father speaks to the Son, or the Spirit speaks to the Father, or the Son speaks to the Spirit, that there's an actually there's an actual true conversation happening between the persons of the Godhead, and they are open to one another. And with that openness to one another, the Lord is then able to be open to us, and to actually hear our prayers, and to actually be moved by them. Now I don't. Again, I, we 
we got to be careful on the one hand with our theology, but we got to be careful on the other hand that our theology doesn't get in the way of what the Lord is teaching us here, and that is that that the Lord says, "I'm going to burn this whole place up," and Amos says, "Would you would you not do that? Stop that?" And the Lord says, "Okay." It's so wonderful. It's so wonderful. And it seems like every time the Lord changes his mind, every time the Lord repents, every time the Lord switches direction, the direction he changes is from law to gospel, (laughs) from punishment to relief, from death to life, from destruction to, to, to salvation. And so the, and the Lord is so pleased to do this. Like, like Jesus, who, who hears this Canaanite woman begging, even the dogs get the food that falls from the master's table. And, she, and Jesus turns and smiles and totally changes his countenance towards her. So the Lord totally changes his countenance based on this prayer, this prayer of Amos. This is so wonderful. It, it really is. The, that, and, and I like what you said about not letting our, not letting our theology get in the way of, of just being astonished at what the Lord gives to us here. But that that thought of the the conversation between the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and and how that's connected to the the Council and the Throne Room of God that we've been talking about, I, I find that very intriguing um, because of because of the matter of, and I think maybe the way this is the way that I'm trying to understand some of this is is that the reason that that the Lord can hear Amos's prayer and change his mind on account of that prayer is because Amos. Amos's prayer gets caught up into the prayers of Christ, who is, and of course this is, you know, in Amos it's looking forward, but now for us it's it's a reality that that Christ in his incarnation is our brother, and now he's ascended to the Father's right hand as our brother still praying for us. I mean, does that help maybe, and again, not to not to let the theology get in the way of the of the mystery, but but to I don't know, comp, does that help, Pastor Walt Mueller, to think of it like that? No. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, Hebrews 7 says that Christ ever to intercede for us, so that this work of intercession is an eternal work of intercession, that the Son stands before the Father pleading his own blood, pleading his mercy, and the Father is pleased to hear this pleading of the Son on behalf of his people. And it's already there. I mean, this is an amazing fact that the Lord calls the people in Israel my people. I mean, if there's anybody who could say, hey, you guys are not my people anymore. You have, you've, you've had plenty of chances, 150 years of apostasy and paganism and faithlessness and reliance on yourself and all of this. You guys are out. You're not my people anymore. You are strangers to me. But the Lord doesn't. He sends Amos to, and he says, go to Israel, my people, my people. How incredible. So that the Lord has continued, continues to call the, uh, the Israelites his own. Israelite, these you are you are mine. You belong to me, and the Lord is so that, and and that's, that's there's nothing that accounts for that except for the death of Jesus. It is through the death of Jesus that we become the Lord's, and He becomes ours. And so that all of any time we have any hint of the graciousness of God, the patience of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, it's all bound up to the death of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Pastor Wolfmuller, we have probably about four minutes left now in the morning. Con- concluding thoughts, wrap, wrap this text up for us. Help us to, to continue to see Christ here in, in Amos chapter 7. Yeah, it's, so we, I mean, we've talked about it already. I think it's really great. So there's, there's fire on the way, but the, I mean, the great news for sinners is that the fire of God's wrath was spent on Jesus on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. So that, uh, so that there is a fire stored up. This is how Peter says it. First Peter three seven. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept into the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The later on in the same chapter, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So that this, this fire is coming. But, and everything will be burned except for the Lord's word. That endures forever. And everything set apart by the Lord's word, which is you and, and me. I mean, this is amazing to think that the Lord heard this intercession of Amos, and he held back this fire, and still is holding it back. 
so that you and I could be could be baptized, so that our families could know the love of the Lord, so that the people who are listening to us could be born and and experience the uh, the kindness of God in Christ. And because of this, and because the fires of God's wrath were doused in the waters of our baptism, we're waiting for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we dwell not in fear of this fire, but in hope that we'll be brought from death to eternal life by Jesus. I love the image of the waters of baptism dousing this fire, which was one of the thoughts that that I'd had as I was thinking through this text, trying to think of how it's fulfilled in Christ. You've got this fire that's going to consume the great deep. But Jesus talks about his death on the cross is a fire that's kindled, right? He talks about this in Luke 12, how the, he wishes that this fire was kindled upon the earth, and he talks about his own baptism and how that fiery wrath comes down upon him. And and yet at the moment of Jesus' death, after he's died on the cross, he's he's pierced with a spear and what com- comes forth, but but water and blood, so that the 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 only water that will not be burned up by this this fire is the living water that that is ours in Christ that's that's been poured upon us in in holy baptism and and in that water which is is Christ's own living water that that's where where we escape this judgment in in the Lord's mercy now pastor Wolf, just under 2 minutes any any closing thoughts no, I think this is great i mean there's a lot here in just these 3 verses and so god be praised for the chance to to dig into it and and may these verses sort of uh, encourage us in the office of intercessor that the Lord has, has given to us as well. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, helping us this morning with Amos chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Pastor Wolfmuller, thank you for your time today. Thank you. The Lord showed Amos in his heavenly counsel what was coming, the, the judgment, the courtroom scene, that, that the verdict would be guilty for his people. And so Amos interceded as a a type of Christ, the one who has stood in the heavenly courtroom and interceded for us. He pleads for us, for our innocence, for our righteousness, by putting his blood shed for us upon us. He stands in our place. And so the Lord has heard his son's prayer on our behalf and in him, baptized into him, the fire of God's wrath does not touch us. Rather, we are we are saved, we are justified, we are washed in Christ. And now, in that place, we stand as intercessors, as Christians, as pastors, as mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, and the various stations that God has put us. Our work is one of intercessor, of crying out to our Heavenly Father that He would have mercy, that He would continue to do what He has done in in sparing the fire, holding it back so that more would repent and believe in Jesus Christ and so be saved. It's a joy to be in that holy work of intercessor with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.